chapter number 4. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And I want to read for your hearing verses 6 through 8 of that passage. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So, well, what does the Spirit say to the church? It's in your Bible. You read your Bible, you're reading what the Spirit says to the church. 2 Timothy chapter number 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And I want us to zero in on verse number 7 where Paul emphatically states, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I want to speak this morning on an unusual subject. What a way to go. What a way to go. We often use this expression regarding how a man dies. And the events surrounding his death. Sometimes we say it connecting it with the funeral that was held. We often say this of a man who dies in his sleep. Without sickness or suffering. He has no pain. There's no cause for alarm. He just goes to sleep and he dies During his sleep, what a way to go. That's not the case with so many, many, many people today. It's awful, a prolonged illness, a prolonged sickness. We say it concerning the size of a funeral many times. When there are lots of flowers, large crowds, great speeches and eulogies, We often say, boy, what a way to go. What a way to go. It must have been said by those who attended Ronald Reagan's funeral. The service lasted more than a week. It was carried by the networks all over the world. There were dignitaries present, marching pallbearers, patriotic hymns and music along with moving testimonials. You visualize that and you say, man, that's the way to go. That's the way to go. Truth of the matter, however, does not rest in how a man dies or what kind of funeral he has. It depends on where he is five seconds After he dies. If a person dies with the joy of the Lord in his heart. 
If he dies with peace in his soul, if he dies with his eyes fixed on the glory world, what better way to go than that? As I said, this is not the case with some. The leader Napoleon made this statement, and I quote it for you this morning. I die before my time, and my body will be given back to the earth to become food for the worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. Unquote. Gandhi, and I quote from him, <clears throat> the great Hindu leader. He said, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long. Perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slew of despondency. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light, unquote. Talleyrand, the French statesman, made this statement. <clears throat> Behold, 83 years have passed away. What cares? What agitation? What anxieties? What ill will? What sad complications? And all without other results except great fatigue of mind and body and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future and of disquiet with regard to the past. Unquote. How different from the words of the Apostle Paul. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course, and I have kept the faith. Thirty years after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, we see him standing before Nero in Rome awaiting execution. He would not be crucified as was Simon Peter, because he was a Roman citizen. He would have his head cut off instead. We might look at that and say, that's not a good way to go. That's not a good way to go. But Paul says just the opposite. Again, listen to his statement in verse number 6. I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. That little word translated Departure, departure is at hand. It's a Greek word, analusis. And there are four ways that that word is used in the Bible that will give us a picture of how Paul viewed his death. Anala, analusis. The time of my departure is at hand. It is a word for unyoking the ox from the cart or the plow. The ox would not have to pull the cart or the plow anymore. Death was viewed by Paul as finding rest from his labors. He would be glad to lay the yoke of burden down. 
The time of my departure is at hand. Secondly, it is a word for loosening bonds or loosening chains. Death to Paul was a liberation to freedom. No longer would he be bound to his body. Isn't it strange that the body makes you do what you do? He would be at liberty and freedom to walk the streets of glory. The time of my departure is at hand. Thirdly, it is a word for loosening the ropes of a tent. Paul was a tent maker. During his travels, he'd have to pitch tent from place to place. But in death, he saw he would be moving for the last time. I've heard this statement so many times. I've made the statement so many times. I get so tired of moving. Some people spend their entire life moving and moving and moving. Paul said the time of my departure is at hand. I don't have to string up another tent to live in. Fourthly, it is a word for loosening the mooring ropes of a ship. Many times Paul had sailed into the deep waters of the Mediterranean. To do this, the massive ropes that held the ship to the dock had to be loosed. Paul was getting ready to leave the shore of time and sail to the shores of eternity. He would be crossing over the waters of death and be welcome to his home in heaven. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul looked forward to death and departure. Our text in verse number 7 again says, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, and I have kept the faith. There are three statements that indicate that this is the only way to go. This is the only way to go. Number one, I fought a good fight. I haven't always been successful, but I tell you what, I fought a good fight. And as Royce Simpson, my dear friend who preached the gospel for so many years, said, I don't know if I have fought a good fight, but I've been in a good one. If you take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and you take a stand for the literal truthfulness of the Word of God, you're going to be in a fight. There are going to be people to ostracize you and set you apart as dumb and, 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 and old fuddy-duddy and Sunday schoolish uh, Bible thumper and this type thing. Uh, Paul said, I have fought a good fight. From the day God saved Paul on the road to Damascus, he was in a constant battle until the day he died. And so will I be, and so will you be. He never quit. He never retreated. So, well, what kind of a fight did he have? I'm glad you asked. Number one, he fought his flesh. He fought his flesh. 
There's a verse in Galatians 5.17 that says this, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Have there ever been things you tried to do that were right, and seemingly you were constantly held back by it? The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. Paul fought with himself daily. He knew there was a warfare going on inside of himself, and every believer is the same. It was a battle between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh. When you come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God takes up a residence in your heart and in your soul, and he doesn't just stay there for a week or two until you stump your toe. He's there until God calls you home. And therefore, anything that your body gets involved in, if it's displeasing to the Lord, the Holy Spirit's going to blow a whistle. He's going to let you know. Have you ever heard anybody make the statement, well, if if I've done anything wrong, what do you mean if you've done anything wrong? You want to write them down? Have you got enough pencils, enough lead in your pen? He fought his flesh. He had a battle with his flesh. Galatians 5, 17, you cannot do the things you would. Paul fought with himself daily. He knew there was a warfare going on inside of himself and every believer as well. It was a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Paul spoke of this in the book of Romans chapter number 7. Romans chapter number 7. In verses 18 and 23, Paul is writing. In verse 18, Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, and how to perform that which is good, I find not. And in verse 23, he says, I see another law in my members. Now he's not talking about the members of his family and he's not talking about the members of the church. He's talking about the members of his human body, his eyes, his ears, his mouth, his hands, his legs, his feet, the members, oh by the way, and his tongue. These are members of our body. And Paul said, I see a law in my members, in my body, in the members of my body, warring against the law of my mind. What's he talking about? The law of his mind. That's the law of Christ. What the Lord wants me to be. What the Lord wants me to do. A constant battle. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul fought with himself daily. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, but I keep under my body. Another way to say that is I keep my body under. 
Well, what do you mean you keep your body under? Whenever your body flares up and says, do this, you slap it and say, no, I don't. Wasn't it Nancy Reagan who introduced the slogan for drug solution? Just say no. There are so many things in life we need to learn how to say yes to, but there are also some things in life we need to know how to say no to. Your body will rule your life. Flesh will rule your life. It comes out in the term addiction. The body is addictive to so many different things because it's weak and it wars against what we know we ought to do in our mind. I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection. Paul uses a pugilistic term here. I beat it black and blue. Whenever my hand reaches for something that it shouldn't reach for, I slap it hard. Whenever my eyes begin to look on something that's unclean and I should not be looking at, I close my eyes. I take my fingers and gouge my eyes. I beat my body black and blue in this warfare of the body and the spirit. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that any means that when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The one thing that Paul feared more than anything else was the fact that one day because he would make the wrong decision and get into some real trouble, God would put him on the shelf and not let him preach anymore and not use him anymore. And Paul was constantly aware of that. Let me tell you something. Every preacher needs to be aware of that. Every preacher, including the man that's standing in this pulpit today, that God could just simply pull the plug and put us on the shelf and say, no more. He's already done it in days gone by. And you may remember and know of some preachers that used to be preachers. They don't preach anymore. Something has happened. The body has taken over the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Doing things that we ought not to do. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. He fought his flesh. Second of all, he fought the devil. The devil is a real person, my dear friends, as real as Jesus Christ is a person. And he is alive today, and he's used all over this world to do his own will and to do his own bidding. Paul said, I fought a good fight. I fought my flesh, I fought the devil. In Ephesians, don't you love that chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians? Let me read it for you. Two verses in it, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's not just for the people in Paul's day he's speaking to. Through the Word of God, He's speaking to Christians today. We're to put on the whole armor of God because we have an adversary, the devil, and he's always presenting 
W-I-L-E-S, as one preacher said, it's the willies. No, it's the wiles, the tricks of the devil. The devil is a master magician. The devil is able to make you see things that don't even exist. The devil is so sharp. And we not only fight our flesh, but we fight the devil himself. Paul knew who the devil was, and the devil knew who Paul was. They were arch enemies. There is an incident that happened in Paul's day on one of his missionary journeys. In the book of Acts chapter number 19, he had gone through a certain village, and while he was there in verse 13, then certain of the vagabond Jews... Exorcists, now these Jews seemingly had some kind of power to cast demons out of people. They were exorcists. They took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits. The name of the Lord Jesus saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. They had heard Paul preach and they said, We command you, Jesus, cast these demons out by your power and also by the word that Paul preached. There were seven sons of Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit (laughs) answered and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? Next verse. And the man in whom the evil spirit was on leaped on them, overcame them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That demon liked to beat them to death. Why? We know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. Paul and the devil were arch enemies one with the other. Paul and Satan were always in conflict. May I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul said, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan. And hindered us. Paul said, I wanted to come to where you were. I wanted to pray with you. I wanted to teach you the Word of God. But I couldn't do it because the devil hindered me. He is a hinderer. He is not your friend. He is your enemy. He's a hinderer. By the way, Satan knew who Job was, did he not? When God said to the devil in the book of Job, Have you considered my servant Job? He's a devoted man and he'll do what's right. And the devil said, The only reason Job does what he does because you've been so good to him. He's never had a sick day in his life. He's got more money than anybody else around here. You just strip him of these things and he'll curse you to your... What I'm saying is the devil knew Paul and the devil knew Job. And guess what? He knows us. Yes, he's a hinderer. Paul fought a good fight. He 
fought his flesh. He fought the devil. Number three, he fought sin. Paul fought sin. In Romans chapter number one, and while you're talk, uh, while you're there, in Romans chapter number one, look at verses twenty-eight through thirty-two. Paul is speaking to the believers in Rome, and he's speaking about those who had never come to know the Lord, and described them as being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, and unmerciful. He was a sin-naming preacher. Years ago, I used to be a Southern Baptist, and I was invited to preach at the First Baptist Church of Linden, Texas. And there was a man, a dentist, who had been saved by the grace of God, who had followed me from certain meetings to other meetings. And he and I had had some long talks about commitment to Jesus Christ. And he became a real friend. They asked for that dentist to pray for me as I was getting up to preach. And I quoted, and I will quote to you how he introduced me. He said, Lord... I hope you'll be with this snake-fighting preacher tonight. Now, what did he mean? There was something about my accolades and my posture and my formality. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No. When you preach the Bible, you preach it straight. Now, today, we have a bunch of idiots trying to rewrite the dictionary. Sin is no more sin. It's just a casual mistake. And drinking, and lying, and cussing, and living like hell itself. All those things, oh, you don't say those things anymore. I do. And you should if you don't. Because you're fighting a fight, a good fight. And it's declared on sin. Fourthly, Paul had a battle with religion. (laughs) He fought religion. When he was preaching to the saints in Galatia, there were some folks that had trusted the Lord, and somebody said, you know what, These they need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul said, no, sir, they don't. Well, they heard about it at the big church down in Jerusalem, so the Jerusalem church sent a committee over to Paul and tried to straighten his theology out. And say, you can't preach what you're preaching. And Paul speaks of this in Galatians 2, verses 4 through 6. And that because false brethren brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
but of these who seemed to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, Paul said, God accepted no, no man's person. I don't care who they are, Paul said. They who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. The religion of the Jews was legal Judaism, and they hated Paul. Paul would not bow down to the denominational headquarters and convention lords of his day, and that's one reason why I'm not a Southern Baptist anymore, ladies and gentlemen. I will not bow down to Dallas. I will not bow down to the Southern Baptist Convention or anybody else's convention. I want to stay true to the Word of God. Not only did Paul say I fought a good fight, and you thought that was going to be the sermon. He said three things, remember. I fought a good fight. Second of all, he said, I have finished my course. I have finished my course. If you'll study the book of Acts chapter 9, when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord explained to Paul that he was going to be a preacher and he would take his gospel around the world to different people at different times. He laid out a course. He laid out a pathway for the apostle Paul to follow And dear friends, Paul followed that course. The Lord gave Paul an assignment on the day of his conversion. And Paul faithfully followed that course that God laid down for him. He did not deviate. He didn't choose an alternative route. He faithfully followed God's call on his life. He established churches all over the then known world. There's a verse in Psalm 37:23 that step, says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. I believe God has a will for me. I believe God has a will for you. I believe God has a plan for every one of his children. He wants us to walk in his word and walk in his truth. Paul was obedient to God's will for his life. You will recall if you've studied much about the Apostle Paul, on one occasion he tried to go into Asia to preach. And God said, no, sir, I'm not going to let you go to Asia. God shut the door. He then tried to go into Bithynia, and God would not let him in there. But he went down to Troas, and the door was opened, and he spent his life going where God told him to go. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And thirdly, he said, I've kept the faith. I have kept the faith. That little word, K-E-P-T, I have kept it, means to watch over. It means to preserve. It means to guard and protect the faith that God has given me. 
Paul never denied his profession of faith. He never one time said, Lord, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have trusted you for salvation. It's too difficult for me. I could have made more money doing some other things in life. No, whatever God wanted him to do, that's what he did. He never denied his profession of faith. He joined the church in Damascus on the profession of his faith in Christ. And he was baptized and his faith never wavered for one minute. Of course, he had a pretty good example in Stephen, did he not? He held the, go- the, the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, and he saw Stephen didn't compromise, and he didn't quit, and he died in his own blood, and that had an impact on the Apostle Paul. Earnestly, the Bible says in Jude 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Contend for it. Don't say, well, I, I tell you what, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of a bipartisan person. No, you're a compromiser. You know what you believe. You stand for it. And if your neighbors don't like it, they move. I'm serious about that, ladies and gentlemen. This idea that we just need to settle down with the enemy and, 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 and let's all get together and love one. That, you don't find that in the Word of God. Paul said, I've kept the faith. This is the body of our faith. We call them the doctrines of grace, the teachings of God's grace. I believe total depravity is one of them. I hope you believe that too. And if you're not quite sure, look in the mirror. You'd be surprised what you'd see if you just look in the mirror. I believe in unconditional election, that before anybody was ever, ever born, that God Almighty loved some people and elected them under salvation, not dependent upon anything they would ever do, but because it was God's choice. Believe that. Not my choice. His choice. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. He preached and practiced perseverance. The requirement for keeping the treasure of faith is to recognize that it is a treasure. Listen to the Word of God now. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are described as people who have, we're earthen vessels. We have this treasure. What is that treasure? It's the treasure of faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He never turned his back on his faith. He never traded his faith for something less volatile. 
It was a treasure. He treated it like a treasure and he kept it. K-E-P-T, kept it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. When I came in touch with this particular instance that happened to a little French girl, I did not think I would ever forget it and have not. A French, certain French girl was born blind. Born blind. After she learned to read by touch, she was given a copy of Mark's Gospel in Braille. This is how some blind people are able to communicate through Braille. And she would take her fingers and run them across the perforated Braille writings to see what the Bible in Mark had to say. She did it so much that her fingers began to callous over. And she couldn't feel properly anymore. So she requested that they take a knife and cut the calluses off of her fingers. So she could again feel the word of God in Braille. That lasted for a while. But it got to the place that she could no longer, by touch, determine what the scriptures were saying. She brought the book, the Bible, to her lips. And she gave it a goodbye kiss. And she said, quote, Farewell, sweet word of my heavenly Father. When she did that, she found that her lips were more sensitive than her fingertips. And from that time on, she would read the word of God with her lips. One final thing, Paul's conversion continued from Damascus to death. I challenge you to study the life of Paul. I believe, this is an opinion, I believe he's one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. Study his life from Damascus till the day he died. He never quit. He never laid down and played dead. Tradition tells us that they brought Paul out in chains to the chopping block. As I said to begin with, they were not going to crucify him because any person that was crucified was considered cursed and Paul was a citizen of Rome and they would not crucify him as they had done other Christians. But they decided to take his head from his shoulders to cut his head off. With his head in position... And the axe began to fall. Paul uttered his final words. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. 
and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. As the head rolled off in a basket, his soul rolled into the arms of the crucified Savior. What a way to go. What a way to go. Fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. As Christians, may that be a threefold goal in our lives. Let's stand, please, for prayer.